Such good stuff this morning. I love that last song. Jesus says that if I am lost, not that I should come to him, but that he will come to me. By definition, if I'm lost, I don't know how to come to him. I cannot find him. But praise God, he found me. And that is worth singing about this morning. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning, the book of Nehemiah, working our way through this book, Ezra, or these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, with a couple of uh, excursions that we've had. We, we Esther, because the events of Esther happen in the midst of the book of Ezra, and then we finished the book of Ezra, and then we stopped for the last four weeks, and we kind of zoomed out a little bit, so we got the... Uh, the the fifty thousand foot view where we could see the entire uh, map, we could see everything that's happening. We see from beginning to end. We went from Genesis one to uh, Revelation twenty two at the very end, and we covered the theme of exile all throughout Scripture. So we we zoomed way out, and now we're going to zoom way back in. And the whole point in all of this is the hope that as we zoom out, we get uh, our, our bearings a little bit better. We understand a little bit more about what is happening in this book. We understand a little bit more why in the world we would we would study the the ancient history of a nation that, frankly, on the grand scale of things, is not a very important nation. Why does Israel matter? Why do we care so much about their history? Why would we zoom in and study so much? And my hope is that uh, you have some sense of that now as we've gone through some of this. Uh, we, we've covered a, a lot of different stuff, but as we zoom uh, back in, what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to look at this history of this nation because what you see as you look at the grand scope of things is that uh, the, the, the story of Israel in miniature is the story of Scripture in full scale, which also means that it is our story too. So today we zoom back in and just a quick reset to remind ourselves of the place we find ourselves before we uh, start into Nehemiah here. Israel's been carted off into exile by the Babylonians. They go into exile for 70 years as functional slaves to the Babylonians. Their country is ruined. Their city is ruined. Their temple is destroyed. They are uh, a homeless people, a scattered people. The Persians take over the Babylonians and then grant the privilege of the, the, the Jews to go back to their home. Now, they don't get to go back and kind of set up shop again and become another nation and a rival nation, but they do at least to go, get to go back to their land, their, uh, their territory. And they're led uh, in the first go-around by our guy, Zerubbabel, and he leads the first group of guys back. They go back, they kind of get things started. They go back and, and begin the process of laying the foundation of the temple, uh, setting things up whenever they, uh, they get back there. And uh, so, so they get there, the foundation gets laid, and then if you'll remember that scene from Ezra, Ezra 3, the, the foundation is, is laid in what you would think would be this time of great rejoicing about what God is doing is instead uh, really kind of a, a moment of mixed joy with sadness as the, the old folks that are there remember what the old temple looked like and they realize very quickly things are not going to be the same. This is not the same temple as what was left and they weep instead of celebrating. So everything, uh, they get that far, and then everything kind of halts. Remember, we have this long pause of almost 100 years where nothing happens. Everything gets halted. They get distracted and a bit afraid of what might happen with the other nations around them. This is where the events of, uh, of Esther show up. Come back to Ezra. 
so after, after the events of Esther, we come back, and then Ezra finally shows up on the scene. So remember, there's three waves of exiles that come out. First was Zerubbabel, second is Ezra, uh, and then the third will be Nehemiah. That is where we're at now. Ezra comes back, uh, sees the temple finally completed, institutes several different uh, reforms, and that's how Ezra ends. Temple completed, people there, but a very unsatisfactory ending because the people are uh, marrying foreign wives, they're uh, being immoral, they're doing the wrong things, and there's just a list of all the things that people did wrong and all the people that were not holding to the covenant. Just a decidedly unsatisfactory ending to a book that should have been a book all about celebration and the return of the exiles, the return home. But Ezra and Nehemiah, as I told you at the very beginning, are actually one book. They're broken up into, uh, in our Bibles here, but they were written as one unit, one book to go all uh, together. And so today we pick back up on that story. And this time, my hope is, like I said, we'll better understand what is happening as the exiles return home now that we understand what exile is all about and where this book fits in the Bible as a whole. So what is the book of Nehemiah uh, about? Uh, we'll meet Nehemiah in just a minute. We'll get to know him quickly. Unlike Ezra, who doesn't come along until halfway through his book, Nehemiah, we will meet right at the very uh, be- beginning. But depending on who you ask, a lot of people will tell you the book of Nehemiah is a book about one of two things, either rebuilding or leadership. A lot of people use the book of Nehemiah as a textbook for leadership. You can find all kinds of books written, especially for, for business people, that talk, about, uh, that, that talk about just this idea that Nehemiah is a great leader and he is to be emulated in the way that he leads. But I think if we do that, if we do that over the next few weeks, actually we're going to be in here all the way through the end of May. Uh, if we do that for the next few weeks, then I think, I think there's some things that we're going to miss. For one, I think a lot, a lot of the things Nehemiah does are great, but there's a lot of things that should not be emulated at all that are actually pretty, pretty terrible, and I think it would make us miss the point. Um, for two, I think if we make this book about leadership, we set our sights way, way too low. If Nehemiah is just about how leaders uh, lead and how to get things done and how to be people of action, then it belongs in the business management section of a bookstore, but it doesn't belong in our Bibles. But it is in our Bible, and it's here for a reason. There's got to be more to this than just how to be a godly leader. I can't wait to get into this book and study some of this with you guys. So let's just jump right in here to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses here and get our first introduction to this, to this uh, man, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th, uh, 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. That should, that should ring some bells for you. That's the same place where the events of Esther took place. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I, asked, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the, providence, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire." 
So here we are. This is the introduction. This is the catalyst that starts everything in the book. Jerusalem's temple is rebuilt. We saw that in Ezra. Uh, Ezra's made his reforms, and that's about where everything stopped. Just like everything kind of stopped halfway through the book of Ezra, at the end of the book of Ezra, everything kind of stops again. Not much else has happened. Nehemiah is in Susa, the, the capital, uh, the same city we learned about Esther. There's a pretty, pretty decent chance that Esther and Nehemiah would have kind of moved in the same circles. Would they have known each other? We don't really know, but they probably would have moved in the same uh, circles. Uh, but, but as you, you, you get through here, you get to know about who Nehemiah is. But as we get to know who he is, it doesn't tell us at the beginning of this book, who is this guy? It says he's the, he's the son of Hakaliah. There's not a lot of uh, meaning behind this, but we look at this and we say, who is Nehemiah and why does he show up as so important on the scene? And you have to go all the way to the end of chapter 1, so skip down a few verses to verse 11. The very last part of chapter 1, it says, now I, that's Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah was the guy responsible for serving and protecting the king. He was the one that made sure so like the food for the king would show up and then Nehemiah would then take that food and he would serve it to the king. He was the gatekeeper for what food made it to the king's table and to the king's mouth. So he would have been the one that uh, made sure the food wasn't poisoned. He probably was a taste test, probably would, 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 would test it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was the guy that handled all of those kind of things. So obviously a very important person. Somebody that was essential in the life of a king that faced, faced threats from without and threats from within. He's important and he's somebody that has to be, uh, that, that has to be trusted to have that role. And I think it's interesting, this is totally uh, an aside here, but I think it's interesting to look back on the book of Esther. Remember, Esther was terrified to confess that she was a Jew for fear of what would happen to her. Do you remember? She went several chapters before she would even, and it wasn't until that, that moment where she said, if I perish, I perish. It wasn't until then that she confesses to uh, the king that she's actually a Jew. She had hidden that from everyone up until that point because she knew if she made that obvious, she might be in some real trouble. So you go from that situation that Esther was in to now Nehemiah, a Jew, who is in one of the most, uh, has some of the biggest responsibilities within the kingdom, that is eminently trusted by the king. So whether or not Nehemiah knew Esther, whether or not they knew each other or not, what we can say for certain is that what Esther did had its immediate impacts, we saw that in her book. But it also had long-lasting impacts in ways that she may have never known. Because now the Jews can hold these very important, well-trusted positions within the kingdom because of what Esther did. And so it just goes to show you never know what one moment of faithfulness, one ordinary moment of faithfulness, the impact that that will have way down the line. Esther was an ordinary person that changed the direction for the Jews within, uh, within Persia. Completely changed that direction. She was an ordinary person. But now we get to Nehemiah, and he's not really an ordinary person. He's in the royal court. He's in this place. So he's not really just an ordinary person. He is an important person. And what we're going to see 
is that he is going to be, uh, play a key role in making sure that Jerusalem comes back to what it should be. He, we know he holds this position of prominence. And these guys show up, and, and uh, it says his brother, but it's, it's just his, 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 his kinsmen. They show up in, in town, and he sees them, and he says, so we don't know if this was like, a, uh, like some scouts that had been out. We don't know why they were coming in, but they were coming back in from being uh, far away, and they had seen Jerusalem. And when he finds out that they had seen Jerusalem, he says, I need to know, how is Jerusalem doing? So he goes to these guys, and he says, how is Jerusalem doing? He... He knows he's in a foreign land. Nehemiah knows he's in a place that is not his home. He's in a foreign land serving a foreign king. And he may not be quite ready to go to his quote-unquote hometown, which is interesting because he's never lived there. He's never been there. He would have grown up there in Susa or someplace close. He's not an exile from that place. But he still considers that place to be home. He's never been there, but he still longs for it, and he wants to see it thrive, and he wants to see it restored. Does that sound familiar? It's the theme of exile again. When he hears that it is not thriving, that it is actually quite the opposite, it's in terrible shape. It's an embarrassment to the Jews that it would look like this, that the city would be in such disrepair. That now, over a hundred years after the exiles have gone back, they may have gotten the temple rebuilt, they may have built for themselves some decent houses, but the city walls are still down. The gate is still not there. It is still wide open. And it's embarrassing. It it, it, it uses the word word shame in there. And so Nehemiah feels the shame that accompanies Israel his people, because they have not bothered to build the, ga- the, the walls of the city uh, around Jerusalem. And he feels the shame of that, not because it's like, you know, you, you have somebody come over and they realize that you don't keep your house all that clean, not that kind of shame. It's the shame like it gives God's name a bad reputation. If Israel says, this is our God, and then this is what uh, their God lets their city look like, Well, then what good is their God at all if they can't even keep the city walls built? How would you respond at this point? How would you respond if you heard the news that a city you have never been to, one that you may have some like ancestral connection to, but it's not your home, it has no nostalgic value for you, how much would you care about what happens in that city? Maybe if you heard that, like, what would your response be? Would it just be kind of like, ah, that's terrible to hear, man. I hate that that's that way. For Nehemiah, this may not have been his home, but it was directly tied to his identity as one of the people of God. So let's keep reading and see how Nehemiah responds to this. So verse 4. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 11. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. 
Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. There's a lot we could talk about here, a lot that we could, we, we could, we could go through. Um, but I kind of want to break down three things in this response from Nehemiah. I just want to talk about three things, and really there's, there's one that I want to focus on because the others we'll talk about more as we go throughout this book. But he does three things in response to hearing about the shape of Jerusalem. He mourns, he prays, and he remembers. He mourns, he prays, and he remembers. That first one, the fact that he mourns, will be the one I'll spend the longest on this morning, be the bulk of the message this morning. It says he sat down and he wept for days. This was a place he did not know. He'd never been to, but he longed to see it return to its former glory. He, it, it's Eden all over again. The place that should be home isn't, and he longs for that place to be restored. He's broken over it. He weeps over it for days. Why would he do that? Because it's just a city. It's not even home. He's not nostalgic about it. There's no memories that he has tied to it. Why would he weep over a place that he's never been to? He's broken by the idea that this city would lie open to attack and that its walls lie in ruin. He knows that God's people, the temple, and the city are in grave danger if they sit in that shape for a long period of time. You see, whenever a city's walls were torn down, whenever they were destroyed, what that basically meant is they had no defense. They were ripe for the pickings. And we know from Ezra, and we'll see this more in Nehemiah, there were enemies all around that did not want to see this city get rebuilt. They did not, were not happy with the fact that, that the Jews got to go back to their homeland. So they had adversaries all around them. The walls were down. They were completely exposed and ready to be destroyed again. He longs for the day. Nehemiah longs for the day when God's people are safe and secure. In part because he doesn't want the people, uh, uh, the, the, the people to d- dismiss Israel's God because their city lies in ruin. You see, it defames the name of God. This is what I was talking about earlier. It defames the name of God. The reputation of God is at stake. If he allows his people to live in a city like this, then what kind of God would do that? So Nehemiah is concerned for the people of the city. He's embarrassed and shamed by the the, the state of the city. And he's concerned about the name and the reputation of God. Mourning is the appropriate response here. Even though it doesn't personally impact him in any tangible way. It's the appropriate response here. 
we tend to tie the idea of mourning to death. And obviously, that is entirely uh, appropriate. But it's not because death is somehow this kind of ultimate thing, but it's because death symbolizes something else. It's symbolic of exile, and it reminds us that things here are not how they're supposed to be. Nehemiah mourns because he hears of the city's walls, and he knows that if Israel had been faithful, if Israel had done what it was supposed to, if they had repented, if they had done what the prophets had warned them about, then that exile never would have happened. The city never would have been burnt down. They never would have been carried away by the Babylonians. He mourns because things are not the way that they're supposed to be for his people. Mourning is the emotion that fills the gap between what should be and what is. And that's why this is the appropriate response. You know, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Do you know why he says that? It's because he knows that our faith is not built on one of those fake smile, happy-go-lucky, positive thinking, all-is-well type of faith. That is not the Christian faith. There are a lot of people that will sell that faith to you, and they will call it Christianity. That is not Christianity. It is not at all. Our faith is rooted in this idea that things have gone wrong in this world. And they should not be that way. This world is rooted in that truth too. This is what we've talked about the last four weeks. Christian or not, you feel that this is true. So Jesus makes room and even pushes us to grow comfortable with the idea of grief and mourning. It's part of the human experience. And it is part of our faith. If our faith is just happy songs on a Sunday morning and a pick-me-up on the radio, then that is not a faith based in reality. That is a faith based in a fantasy land that does not exist. And it is ultimately a faith that will not stand. The other reason Jesus says that we are blessed when we are mourned is because it gives God glory. Let me, let me explain what I mean when I say that. When I've heard this beatitude before, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, I think I assume some things incorrectly about this book. It says, blessed are those who are about that, that beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I assumed that that meant the source of our grieving would be removed. My assumption is that comfort equals the, rem- the removal of the source of our grief and our mourning. Does that make sense? Like in order to be comforted, that is taken away from us. Even if it's not in this lifetime, it would somehow be removed so that we would mourn no more. But I think I've assumed wrong there. I don't think this is what Jesus means in this beatitude. I think what he means is not that our grief would be removed, as in we don't experience it anymore. I think what he means is that we would be met in that morning. I think what he means is that in our mourning, in our grief, that he will be there with us and for us in that moment. 
And when that happens, we will know God way we will know God in ways that would be impossible to know him otherwise. And he will be glorified in that. So it is not that our grief is removed because the source of our grief is is removed. It's not that we don't mourn because there is nothing to mourn. It's that when we mourn, he meets us in that moment. He is there with us in that time. And if we do not mourn, we miss out on being a part of what happens when God restores We miss out on the celebration and the depth of emotion that comes with that. And again, I'm trying to take this idea of mourning out of connecting it to to death, but obviously that is is an easy and a clear application. But I'm talking about anything in this world that is not how it's supposed to be. Anything that we've talked about over the last few weeks, anything you've identified and you've said, this is not how it should be, this is not right. You, you pick your topic. Just watch the news. It'll give you seven or eight different topics every night to talk about. Where things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And if we don't mourn over those things, then we don't get to feel the depth of the emotion when God restores and redeems those things. Sure, we can sit back and we can say, man, that's great. I'm glad that that has been fixed. I'm glad that the the, the darkness has been pushed back there. But you don't don't get to count that as as a personal victory in which you saw God work in that way that brought you out of the depths of that emotion. Before I was pastor here, um, I was a minister of recreation at a, at a big church in, in West Knoxville. That's, that's what I did. I ran our upward programs, uh, soccer, flag football, basketball. Uh, I ran the athletic department for a Christian school. Uh, I partnered with our student ministry to run some students' leagues, some high school and, and middle school student leagues after Wednesday night. Uh, I enjoyed all of that. I, all of that was really fun. I got to coach some flag football for middle school. Uh, it was a lot of fun. But the bane of my existence... Easily the worst part of my job was running the men's basketball league. Oh, man. Church league men's basketball is the worst. It is the absolute worst. It got to the point, I'm not kidding when I tell you this, Abby would have been two or three years old at this point, that I brought her to a game with me and sat her on the the, the bench at the end of the bench, and I said to the guys that were playing, some of them deacons, I said to the guys that were playing, If I hear anything out of your mouth that I'm not comfortable with her hearing, I will throw you out and you won't be back for the next six months. That's how bad it had gotten. I hated that part of my job. It was terrible. Um, But for whatever reason, this this league was actually really fun if the guys could keep their mouth shut. It was was actually a, a, a lot of fun. Um, and there were 15 to 20 guys that played in this league every year out of about 50 to 60 guys that made up the, the bulk of the league. And they took it very seriously, way too seriously. Uh, but it made it a lot of fun. And, 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 and it would make the playoffs, whenever those came around for this little league, uh, very interesting. And the winner of the championship would maintain bragging rights that they would exercise a lot during the year, it would give them bragging rights to be able to say that they won the, the men's church league championship. It was, it was a lot of fun. Some of the, the, the D1 guys from UT that uh, had just graduated would come and play in this league. It, there was some pretty high-level basketball that was happening. Um, 
But I remember there was one season where the championship game uh, fell to the, the two kind of biggest trash talkers that, that were out there. Uh, and in the, the, the final game, uh, it, it, this championship game, each of the team's benches were a little more full than they had been for most of their games during the season. Like most of the time, it was five or six guys. They would just have to play the whole time, hardly any subs. So by the fourth quarter, you had a bunch of just really winded people that were like, I don't know, just throwing up threes because they didn't want to run the whole way of the court. And, but this game, the championship game, the benches were more full. There were like eight, nine, ten guys on each bench. They had shown up just for the championship game. Now, they were technically on the roster, but they couldn't bother to be there for the regular season games at all. They were on the roster, but they just couldn't bother to be there. But they showed up for the championship game because who's going to miss the championship game? And this particular game I'm thinking of, it was a battle, and it came down to a layup with one second left. They hit the layup. Buzzer goes off. They win. Uh, everybody goes crazy. Their wives that were there watching, they go crazy. Their girlfriends that were there watching, they go crazy. Their kids that were there watching, everybody goes crazy. It was, it was, it was a fun one uh, to watch. But do you know who the, the loudest trash talkers and the ones who, did, who, who, who ran around and went crazy the most, who posed for the most pictures with the trophy that we gave out, it was those two or three guys that hadn't been there all season. They just showed up for the championship game. They just showed up for that final game. They may have scored like five points in the game. They didn't do anything all season. Those were the guys that were like, Leaning over the trophy, they got the big number one, they were talking smack the most at the end of the game, they were doing all, that was the guys that wanted to be seen front and center. They put those bragging rights to use early and often, but they had done nothing to deserve that moment. They had not earned that moment, they just showed up at the very end, and now they're trying to celebrate as though they had something to do with what happened. I mean, they're celebrating, but they know in their, in their own hearts that this is not the same as the guys that came every week, that left dinner early so they could come and play in this, this men's basketball league, that, that, that came right after work, that paid their dues, that earned the title. They were just jumping on somebody else's achievement. So even though they celebrated and they were having all kinds of fun and they were, uh, they were taking credit for something they had nothing to do with... Um, they hadn't, they hadn't really experienced what was required to celebrate at that level. In a very trivial, way too long way, the point I'm trying to make here is that this is how it works when we go through life just kind of coasting. When we go through life completely distracted by everything this world throws at us. When we go through life, many of us willingly distracted because we know if we don't distract ourselves, if we don't distract our minds, then we are going to feel pain. We are going to feel hurt. We are going to feel things that we don't want to feel. And so we are constantly trying to find other things to occupy our mind, occupy our, our, uh, our hearts, occupy anything that we can so that we don't have to feel that pain. We go through life and we coast and we never empathize with anyone else. We never stop to consider what other people are going through. We never take the time to move out of our own kind of self-centered, self-involved world to look at what the rest of the world is dealing with and even what those around us are dealing with. And so we never mourn. 
We never weep. We never do what Nehemiah does right here, which is stop for just a moment. He would have been busy. He has a job to do, a very important job. But he takes the time to stop, to empathize, and to consider what has happened to this city that he's never been to. And because he does that, he mourns. He is not like the guys in this championship game that don't fully understand the depth of of the celebration that should happen when you win a championship because of what you've put into it. He's the opposite. He is pouring himself into this. And so what this means is that he now has the capital, he now has the the spiritual uh, wherewithal to be able to lead his people because he has mourned over his people. And he has mourned for his people. Even those he doesn't know. Even those he doesn't know. When we insulate ourselves and our bubble and don't do the work of grieving and mourning for our country, for the church, for our friends, for for those that we know, when we don't do the work of grieving and mourning and praying that God would restore to the rightful place where things should be, When that happens, we miss out on a tremendous blessing whenever God works and works through us to push back the darkness. The book of Nehemiah is often used as a handbook of leadership. Many will tell you that this book is about leadership, and on some level it is, but I really don't think leadership is the best way to talk about what Nehemiah does. My biggest problem with that is I think people kind of think that leadership is somehow the grand goal of the Christian life. That's why there's countless books out there. But I think we get leadership wrong most of the time. It's interesting. Jesus never says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who lead. He says, blessed are those who mourn. We do well to hone our ability to mourn if we want to be able to truly see change. Biblically speaking, the best leaders are the ones that feel the deepest and weep the most. If you want to see change, you have to mourn first. You must feel the weight of what has been lost before you can see and understand the fullness of what God wants to do when he meets you in that morning. We must be a people that can feel deeply for others. I think the, the, the Christian church in America especially has lost our ability to do this. We're so busy trying to fight people, we forget how to feel with people. We forget how to care for people. We must be a people in which empathy, entering into the pain others are feeling, becomes such a part of who we are that we are known for it. We must be able to mourn before we can do more. Secondly, he prays. Like I said, I'm not going to spend a long time on this. I want to talk more about this, but, but he prays. He wastes no time and immediately gets into this. And before he heads into action for what to do about his city in ruins, he comes before God and he lays out what he is feeling. He confesses the sin of his people, I think this is interesting. Note the corporate nature of his 
confession here. You can cross-reference that with Ezra 9, whenever Ezra did the same thing. He showed up and he realizes what the people were doing. He confesses the sin of the people. Cross-reference that with Isaiah chapter 6. Whenever Isaiah chapter 6 comes before God, he says, Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I find this very interesting, and I'll be completely honest, I'm not really sure what to make of it entirely. Because when you read through the Old Testament, there is a pattern in Scripture I cannot ignore. Because I like to think I'm not included in the sin of others when I have not committed that sin. When I think about all the things that I can't stand about the American church, I want to shout to God, that's not me, that's not providence, that's not us. I'm not accountable for their sins. Which I'm also keenly aware of how much that sounds like, thank you God for not making me like this tax collector. It's a pattern so often repeated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, though not as much, that I don't think I can ignore it, but I also don't feel like I fully understand how I should apply it just yet. So I just want to mention it. There is a lot of corporate prayer and corporate repentance in the Bible. And we are too quick to say, that's not me, God. That's not us. Nehemiah has never met these people. And Nehemiah says, I repent, we repent of our sins. I don't know what to make of that. You can pray about it. I'm praying about it. It's just something I think I need to point out. We do well not to dismiss that too quickly. But we're going to see all throughout this book, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. We'll talk more about prayer as we go throughout this book. In this prayer, he confesses and he remembers and he calls on God to do the same. In verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And then he goes on to talk about what God had told Moses. This is the pattern in all of Scripture. When people pray, they are often asking God to do something not new, but simply that he'll do what he promised he would do. They know God's promises and they stand on those promises. They hope they have is that God would simply be faithful to what he has says. So Nehemiah says, I'm about to go to the king. See that next week when he does. I'm about to go to the king. I need your help. But I don't want you to help me because I'm good. How often is that the basis for our prayers? God, I've done what you ask. Now I'm asking you to do something. He doesn't come and say, God, I want you to help me because I'm good. He's already confessed he's not. But he says, I want you to help me because you are good. And you are faithful. Won't you show me your goodness? That is a great prayer. So this morning we see that Nehemiah begins this long journey back to Jerusalem that will carry us throughout this book, not with a strategic plan, not with a glossy notebook of how he's going to go and get help. He doesn't begin with a fundraiser. He doesn't begin with great marketing materials. He begins with a burden. A burden born from his empathy and from his grief over what should be instead of what is. So what grieves you this morning? What burden do you have? If you have to think long and hard about what that is, let me submit to you that perhaps you have too too much distracted yourself from what is going on in this world. What is going on in your own life? 
Perhaps you do not grieve and you do not mourn the state of things around us because you simply don't take the time to say, God, break my heart for these things. Do you know what God is calling you to do? What causes you to mourn, what causes you to say, this should not be, that's a pretty good place to start. That's where Nehemiah starts. That's where we start this book. And I look forward to going through the rest of it with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you do not simply leave us in this place to fill the, 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 the depth of what has been broken in this world. And you, do, you don't just leave us there, but you meet us there. Father, for those that are here this morning that do mourn things, that look at things and say things should not be like this, I pray that you would meet them this morning. Father, for those that are too distracted, that are too, um, too, too, paying too much attention to the things of this world, that are intentionally uh, drawing their gaze elsewhere, I pray that you will stop them long enough for them to look around and say, this should not be. Father, give us all a holy burden that breaks us and causes us to weep. And Father, meet us there. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.